0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 63, Reach New Heights and Reveal the Unknown. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So if you're new to the show, we bring in NASA experts and talk about all the different parts of this space agency, and sometimes we get lucky enough to bring in some of our leaders here at NASA. So today we're talking with Jim Bridenstine and Mark Geyer. Mr. Bridenstine is the 13th administrator of NASA, sworn in on April 23rd, 2018, And Mr. Geyer is the 12th director of the Johnson Space Center as of May 25, 2018, both very recent leaders. So a little bit about our administrator. Bridenstine's career in federal service began in the U.S. Navy, flying the E-2C Hawkeye off the USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier. It was there he flew combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan and accrued more than 1,900 flight hours and 333 carrier-arrested landings. He later moved to the F-18 Hornet and flew at the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center, the parent command to Top Gun. After transitioning from active duty to the U.S. Navy Reserve, Bridenstine returned to Tulsa, Oklahoma to be the executive director of the Tulsa Air and Space Museum and Planetarium. Bridenstine was promoted to the rank of lieutenant commander in 2012 while flying missions in Central and South America in support of America's war on drugs. Most recently, he transitioned to the 137th Special Operations Wing of the Oklahoma Air National Guard. Also in 2012, Bridenstine was elected to represent Oklahoma's first congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he served on the Armed Services Committee and the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Geyer began his NASA career in 1990 at NASA Johnson in the new business directorate. He joined the International Space Station program in 1994, where he served a variety of roles until 2005, including Chair of the Space Station Mission Management Team, Manager of the ISS Program Integration Office, and NASA Lead Negotiator with Russia on space station requirements, plans, and strategies. From 2005 to 2007, Geyer served as Deputy Program Manager of the Constellation Program before transitioning to Manager of the Orion Program, a position he held until 2015. Under Geyer's direction, Orion was successfully tested in space in 2014 for the first time, bringing NASA another step closer to sending astronauts to deep space destinations. After supporting Orion, Geyer served as Deputy Center Director at NASA Johnson until September 2017. In this role, he helped the Center Director manage a broad range of human spaceflight activities, including the Center's annual budget of approximately $5.1 billion. From October 2017 to May 2018, Geyer served as the Acting Deputy Associate Administrator for Technical for the Human Explorations and Operations Mission Directorate at NASA Headquarters in Washington. In this position, he was responsible for assisting the Associate Administrator in providing strategic direction for all aspects of NASA's human spaceflight exploration missions. Born in Indianapolis, Geyer earned both his Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees in Aeronautical and Astronautical Engineering from Purdue University in Indiana. Geyer is now the director of NASA's Johnson Space Center. In this role, Geyer leads a workforce of approximately 10,000 civil servant and contractor employees at one of NASA's largest installations in Houston and the White Sands Test Facility in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Today, I'm sitting down with our administrator and center director to discuss this very exciting period we're in for human spaceflight. We discuss NASA as a whole, commercial crew, the commercialization of space, and the mission and direction of America's Space Agency. So with no further delay, let's jump right ahead to our talk with NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine and Director of the Johnson Space Center, Mark Geyer. Enjoy.
1: T minus five seconds and counting. Mark
2: shirt for the red. Here she goes isn't we have a podcast
0: Jim and Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This is such an exciting day, but also just a, an exciting time for us here at the agency. So I appreciate you coming on today.
2: Great to be here. Awesome. Yeah, thanks.
0: So so just to sort of recap the events of today, we had Vice President Mike Pence here uh, to address some fantastic missions and, and opportunities that we have here at NASA to look forward to. Is um, That's what I, I really mean, it's an exciting time. So if we can just give like a quick summary, uh, Jim, if you want to, you bet. Uh, for what was said today.
2: So it was, uh, it was his opportunity to come and lay out for the folks here at the Johnson Space Center, but also for everybody who works at NASA nationally, mm-hmm. uh, really his vision for civil space, for our journey back to the moon, for commercializing low Earth orbit, uh, for building SLS and Orion to get humans deeper into space than ever before, um, and really get uh, get the get nasa and its workforce enthused about the next chapter of humans in space and so um i would uh i would say based on his his speech today i I think i think it was effective
0: (laughs) i absolutely agree and he was here at the johnson space center because we do play an integral role so mark what is what is the role of the johnson space center in all of this
1: so johnson has in the past and still plays an incredible core role to human space flight Mm -hmm. So we do, of course, we do the obvious things. The astronauts are trained and picked and flown from here. We do operations, so we control the spacecraft and work with the crews here in in mission operations. And then also we do design work uh, like Orion, programs like Orion. We manage programs like Space Station, Mm -hmm. which ties uh, the world together on an incredible program. Then we do human health and performance, which is part of Seeing how the body behaves in space is kind of ties to our work with astronauts. And then what, what was great about the visit today, I think, was he also visited uh, the curation facility, which is where that's right. in the uh, really in the United States, whenever we bring samples back from other worlds, they come here to the, to the Johnson Space Center. So that's a key piece I think a lot of people forget that we do.
0: Yeah, a huge array of activities, a lot of it dealing with research and sort of trying to understand what we need to know to go out further into space. Exactly. And then the actual technologies behind that. Uh, Jim, you were you were um, app- appointed uh, very recently here. So you've been when when you first came on, you said you recognize NASA as a family. Yeah. Um, now that you've been here a couple months, do you feel like you're part of the family?
2: Without question, uh, folks have been just so uh, welcoming and nice. Uh, in fact, I, I had my family here at the Johnson Space Center just a couple of weeks ago, um, and it, what an amazing opportunity for my kids to be able to interact <laughs> with the brilliant folks that are here and. Um, really have the, have a chance to spend time with some of the smartest minds in our country. Um, so yeah, it it has been it has really felt like a family, and and having my family here really uh, I think uh, solidified that.
0: That's right. So so you've been you've been a proponent for space flight and and NASA just in general even throughout your career. Now coming here and being part of NASA, when someone comes up to you now and says, "What does NASA do?" Knowing knowing kind of what we do from the inside now, what do you say?
2: We increase the awesome. That's what we do. As <laughs> I a, love it. A, a, we, we are a part of the federal government that works on really, really awesome things. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, my, my job as the NASA administrator is really focused on making sure that we're following through on the president's space policy directives. Mm-hmm. His first space policy directive is that we're going to the moon and we're going to go in a sustainable way. His second space policy directive is about regulation and enabling commercial partnerships. And of course, his third space policy directive is about space situational awareness and space traffic management. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, NASA plays a role and or will benefit from each of those. Uh, and so we're really putting together the architecture that, um, that follows through on the president's directives and then um, watching you know what the great workforce here does in enabling our missions to go forward in a really amazing way. So people say, you know, what does NASA do? Um, A lot of people, you know, you think about the history. uh, There's a lot of awesomeness in the history. (laughs) Uh, And you think about the space shuttles and the retirement of the space shuttles. Mm -hmm. um, People remember that. um, Remember those days going back to, you know, Gemini and Apollo and Mercury before that. Um, and of course, they remember, remember the space shuttles. But at this point, we're focused on getting American astronauts to launch on American rockets again from American soil for the first time since 2011, the retirement of the space shuttles. Um, and and so. Um, we're going to get there and uh, look forward to being at the helm when all of that happens again.
0: That's right. This is one, this is one of those exciting things that I was talking about, you oh, know, yeah. launching from American soil again. So when, when we're, I, I do want to go through all of these exciting things, right, launching from American soil, this, this commercialization, this, this deep space exploration. But I want to know, since, since I have you here, what's your role as the administrator at NASA to make all of this happen?
2: So again, uh, following through on the president's space policy directives, mm-hmm. and then ultimately uh, guiding the agency as as you think about the policy and the and the directions that, that were, that, that uh, the directions that we're taking, um, you know the you know my my role is really guidance, um, and I work a lot with the interagency. Um, a lot of people think space and they think NASA. But uh, for all of our commercial partners, a lot of them provide things in space that are licensed, if you will, by the FAA Office of Commercial Space Transportation. When you think about, um, you know, remote sensing and imagery, all of all of that is licensed by the the Commerce Department through through NOAA. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so there's a lot of activity in space, the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the Department of, of Transportation. Uh, there's a lot of activity that isn't specific to NASA where we need interagency kind of collaboration. So I work with the interagency. Um, I also work as, as a former member of Congress. Uh, mm-hmm. I work on the Hill to make sure that um, our you know budget requirements are, are being met to accomplish the objectives set forth by the President and of course by Congress. Uh, they authorize you know what we're supposed to be doing and of course they appropriate the funds to accomplish those objectives. So um you know my goal is to make sure that we are within within the law that we're following through on the president's guidance uh and that um at the end of the day uh we're we're heading the right
1: direction
0: so with this guidance with with these directives um mark in the johnson space center what are we doing to sort of take this path
1: so we have of course um we're finishing Uh, The commercial crew vehicles and part of our job at Johnson Space Center is to be kind of the spacecraft expert So we're following along with the providers and following along in the design and checking the requirements So we're getting into a certification Part of that are we ready are these vehicles meeting the requirements are ready to put our crews in them and that's going to be essential um, because we're trying to basically operate the space station, keep up the space station, and as Jim said, fly from U.S. soil, Mm -hmm. cut the the cost down. So a key part of that is finishing that part of the job. Hmm. And then on space station, of course, we're doing research for how the human body behaves in long duration, and that's a key part of any exploration plan, right? How how are we going to keep our crews safe and healthy for these long-duration missions? So that's a big part that we're doing today that applies then SLS Orion, uh, as, as I've mentioned before many times, so we're ready, almost ready to fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2020, we'll be flying. And those are key missions that enable uh, Space uh, Policy Directive number one, going back to the moon. Because you need the kind of energy that SLS provides and the kind of systems that Orion provides to get a crew out past the moon. Yeah. So those are going to be very <laughs> visible things in the near term. And then really, we've been working in them for a while about what we're going to do around the moon. Right, and how we're going to use this gateway to basically provide access to the moon. And so we're in the early stages, but Johnson plays a key role in, in how that's going to work and how that might come together. And we use our experience in how to partner with people, both international and commercial, to figure out the smartest ways to make that happen. So we have a lot of, a lot of pieces that we're pulling together to help NASA implement that plan.
2: That's when, right. when you think about the human physiology, which Mark mentioned, that's one of the big reasons um, the first space policy directive uh, by the president is to go back to the moon we we know because of the great work done here at johnson we know what happens to human physiology in a microgravity environment we know that you know that your your bone mass will decrease by about one to three percent per month and there are ways to mitigate against that but Mm -hmm. um but there will be a degradation of the bone mass we know that the heart will be deconditioned Um, we know that the neurovestibular system gets Um, thrown out of whack while you're in a microgravity environment when you come back to a a, a gravity environment. So the question is, you know, if we're going to send astronauts to Mars, they're going to be in that microgravity environment for six, seven, eight, nine months. Mm -hmm. Um, And once they're at Mars, there's no coming home for at least two years. Well, the moon gives us an opportunity um, to to prove out, you know, can, you know, are are there, um, are there ways that we can have an astronaut in a microgravity environment for six months and then send them to the moon and see if that reverses the effects. Like when you're in one sixth G, which is the surface of the moon, um, does that reverse the effects that you had in microgravity? Um, And if it does, then we would know that in one third G, which is Mars, uh, it would probably also be effective. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is we can't send astronauts for the first time after being in a microgravity environment for seven months put them on, a, on the surface of another world, and have them be perfect. They have to be perfect in order to stay alive for two years. Yeah. Um, and proving that out at the moon is really the best way to do it. And so um, that's what Space Policy Directive 1 is all about, a- as well as retiring the risk for a lot of the technologies and the capabilities.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah that's, that's one of the things... One of the nice things, I think, about the International Space Station is that it's so close. 250 miles sounds pretty far, but honestly, it's it's pretty close to home. If anything goes wrong, you can come back. It's the perfect place, really, to test a lot of these capabilities. And that's, I think, where the commercial crew comes in, right? Now we're, we're doing this certification process. We're working with SpaceX and Boeing very closely, uh, to provide us the capability for low, to access to low-Earth orbit, but it's not just that, right? We're talking about the space station, uh, uh, we're ending direct federal funding in 2025, building a low-Earth orbit economy, something that's, I don't think, been done before. What's, so, that's part of this directive, right, is establishing an economy in space. So, how are we doing that?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and we're going to have to work through it. Yeah. Um, y- you can imagine, um, there's all kinds of technologies and capabilities. That have been developed already and and mark has been really good about talking about how the space station the international space station has really been a a key driver of enabling us to to commercialize low earth orbit Mm -hmm. if there is no space station there would be no commercialization and so um, it has been a, a very effective tool for building the space economy if you will and now when you think about what the future holds even experiments that are happening right now You think about fiber optics being manufactured on the International Space Station, which could um, drive down the cost for, um, in essence, making um, uh, not just America, but the world more connected. You think about um, the ability to produce pharmaceuticals in a microgravity environment where you can um, do things that you cannot do on Earth. You think about um, taking adult stem cells, and 3D printing human organs uh, to increase the, the, you know, the lives of of humans. All of these things are being developed right now uh, with the support of NASA on the International Space Station. And each one of those things is a market unto itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's so much more, right? So what we want to make sure, and another piece of this, you know, we talk about commercial crew. We're going to be launching commercial crew here um, in the next year. We're talking about as 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 we've talked about sending American astronauts on American rockets from American soil all of that is fantastic but these commercial crew providers in many they they have seats they have they have seven seats on their spacecraft which means we could be flying tourists to the international Space Station uh, in other words there's and I'm not saying we're going to do that I'm saying that is an opportunity that we need to look at mm-hmm. uh, because there could be a day when um, we have not just tourists but um, you know, different types of scientists, um, different types of even journalists, um, flying to the International Space Station uh, to share with the world kind of what's what's happening uh, in in low Earth orbit. So there's all kinds of ways for the International Space Station to become more commercialized between now and and 2000, uh, 2025. Mm-hmm. Um, that's seven years from now. There's yeah. between now and then. There's a lot that's going to change. And it's not just the International Space Station that could be more commercialized. It would be other private habitats in low Earth orbit that would be adding to that um, marketplace in low Earth orbit. So um, there's a lot of really exciting things happening. What we wanna make sure we do though, and Mark and I have talked about this, we wanna make sure that we're planning today Mm -hmm. for a future where we have no gaps in low Earth orbit. We we don't wanna have a day when American astronauts are not there. Kids that are graduating from high school today have lived their entire lives with a human living and working in space. We want to make sure that that happens, you know, 18 years from now and then 18 years from then. There's no gap. Um, and so that's really what we're working to achieve now.
0: That's right, and, and it's it's already under work. Mark, I know just recently the NASA research announcement came out, we selected companies to actually take a look specifically at this, what can we do, yeah. right? So so what's going on there?
1: Yeah, exactly, that's a, g- a great lead in, because we're, you know, we, NASA, we're, we're smart people, we've been partnering with people for our whole our whole history, so yeah. now we're asking people that are on the cutting edge of commercializing space, and some are suppliers, some are creating demand side. So we ask them, what would you do? Right? What right. Would, What do you think makes sense as a company that would enable you? And what do you think NASA is doing that's stopping you? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about both of those. And what are the things we can do as a as an agency to help that? Because as Jim said, that's the goal. We're trying to be, uh, and I like the phrase, one of many customers. So how does that happen? That means these other folks need to be customers. These other folks need to have a reason to be in space. And so how do we enable that? So we're really casting a wide net. Asking people who have not just people who are, are thinking, but people who have actually done commercial ideas in space, and say, "Okay, how would it work?" That's so we right. can put together a real plan. I think that's the key.
0: Yeah, work, and then also be sustainable. Exactly something something that's a business opportunity, something that you want people to come and participate in. Exactly. You know, it's it's an, it's something that commercial industries can profit from. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I think we see when if 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 I could just add to that. Yeah, sure. I think we're seeing on station with uh, with the national lab and other things. Where it's not, it's not real, real simple to start a company in space, right? It's not real, real simple to start creating a product in space. It takes uh, some help from NASA just to get up there. It mm-hmm. takes people with expertise about what happens uh, in space, and then it takes tri- trial and error. So the National Lab is a great example where we take people who are interested, who aren't our normal space folks that've been in space, all sorts of different companies, um, and then we. Uh, give them talk about the opportunities we tie them with people who have capabilities we link them with people who have money say hey these people might be interested too yeah because it's seeding that that's really really important and I think what'll the key was if one when one of those takes off where somebody really starts making money Mm -hmm. uh, in space uh, that'll be great for us we just need to get out of the way because they're they're going to be doing their thing and that's really going to help us reduce our fixed costs because they'll be buying services too for so sure. Be
2: good. And, and then when that happens, then uh, as Mark said, we, we will be what NASA will be one customer of many customers, which drives down our price. But we'll also have a lot of providers. When I say a lot of providers, we'll have a lot of launch providers. We'll have a lot of potentially commercial space stations that we can take our NASA astronauts to on commercial launch um, providers. Um, and then, so if you have multiple providers and we are one of many customers, then. Um, they're competing on innovation. They're trying to do more uh, Mm -hmm. in order to become a bigger, you know, they want us to be an an even bigger customer. So they're going to compete on innovation. They're going to compete on costs. That means NASA can do more than it's ever done before. It also means that we're going to be able to take our resources from the taxpayer and do things for which there is no commercial marketplace. We can fly to the moon on SLS and Orion, which right now there isn't a commercial capability there. And of course we can build the gateway. And the first gateway is about more access to more parts of the moon than ever before. And the second gateway is a deep space transport that takes us to Mars. So all of those capabilities are dependent on us commercializing low earth orbit. We don't want to lose low earth orbit. We just want it to be commercialized. Um, And then we can take our resources and do things where there is no commercial market yet.
0: Yeah, we don't want to lose it. It goes back to your point of saying continuing access, right? We still want to be a part of that. NASA is one of many customers, but also the access, you know, for for astronauts too and even for for private companies to to send people up there and that's that's actually a money-making endeavor as well. But the, you know, while we're while we're also doing that, there's this this economy down there so we can focus on like you're saying exploration and this gateway thing i don't think is something we've touched on so much on this show so so we've what is gateway what is this thing so the idea
2: is um space policy directive 1 says we're going to the moon yeah it also says that we're going to go sustainably hmm. in other words um, we're not going to do flags and footprints again, but this time when we go to the moon We're going to stay. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways to make sure that we don't come home is to put a space station Around the moon for a very long period of time and we you know It's going to have solar electric propulsion, which means uh, very high specific impulse in other words uh uh, uh, the uh, the fuel economy <laughs> will be very very high, nice. uh, so it can stay there for a, a long period of time, and it's in what's called a near, ha- near rectilinear halo orbit, which means it's kind of balanced between Earth or you know Earth and the Moon are you know the gravity wells of the two planetary bodies. Mm-hmm. So all of that being said, it can be there for a long long time, um, and then what we need is we need reusability. We we know what happens with reusable launch: the costs go down, access goes up. We need, you know, tugs between Earth orbit and lunar orbit to be reusable. We need landers that go from that gateway, uh, that space station, in orbit around the moon. We need landers to be reusable. All of that um, reusability is what makes everything sustainable. The other thing that's important is when we go to the moon, we want to have access to every part of the moon, not just the equatorial regions. Mm. Um from 1969 when we first landed on the moon all the way up until 2008 39 years we believed that the moon was bone dry and in 2008 and then uh, more in 2009 we discovered that there's hundreds of billions of tons of water ice on the surface of the moon water ice represents you know water to drink of course but it also represents air to breathe and it represents rocket fuel, hydrogen and oxygen, ultimately, when separated into its component parts and put into cryogenic form, that's that's rocket fuel. Now, um, Space Policy Directive 1, signed by the president, actually talks about utilizing the resources of the moon. So, again, we want to go sustainably. We want to not do flags and footprints. We want to be there to stay. Mm-hmm. We want to utilize the resources of, of the moon, namely water ice for now. Mm-hmm. But it's also true, and we don't know, but it's true that there could be, you know, platinum group metals on the surface of the moon. Rare, you know, on Earth we call them rare Earth metals. But they're really asteroid impacts from billions of years ago. Well, the moon has the same the same you know, path that the moon has <laughs> through the solar system, yeah. which which means that it probably impacted the same asteroids that the earth has impacted, which means there could be um, a, a lot, it could be trillions of dollars worth of platinum group metals on the surface of the moon. Mm-hmm. We don't know, but certainly uh, we should find out. <laughs> and it should be the United States of America that finds out, not somebody else.
0: Right. Yeah, so I, I like this idea of Gateway because basically what you're describing is is developing not only the space station and access, but also a capability, a flexible capability. That's right. So it, it orbits the moon, but basically after that, you can kind of decide, oh, it's it's all about exploration, right? That's right. So as soon as you find something new, you can, you know, oh, let's go check that out. Let's go check that out. Exactly. It's enabling this access. It's an it's a awesome time. And, and the thing that's going to take us there, right, is... The space launch system. That's right. Yeah. That's- and
2: and in fact, commercial partners as well.
0: Oh, okay. It's all going to be open architecture.
2: So, uh, whether people are docking or using the power of the gateway, um, you know, we we want we want our commercial partners to be able to build their own landers. Hmm. We want our our international partners to be able to build their own landers. Um, the the goal here ultimately is for the United States of America to assume the lead and then enable our commercial and international partners to do more and, and, and be there for a very long period of time mm-hmm. so that we can learn scientifically more about the moon than we've ever known before. Like I said, we first discovered water ice in 2008. Um, what else do we not know about the surface of the moon? And I'm willing to bet there is a lot we don't know. That's right. Uh, and then ultimately, again, retiring the risk on a lot of these capabilities and technologies so that that gateway can be in the long run the second gateway can be our deep space transport to, to to get us to mars and we want this entire architecture to be replicable like we want to be able to take it to mars mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's the objective now i know you know mars and and the moon are not the same mars has an atmosphere which makes entry descent and landing a little bit more challenging uh, but at the same time, uh, as much of it that we can replicate, we want to be able to, to replicate.
0: For sure. That's Another right. theme you've been touching on is, is this idea of leadership, the idea of, of Americans uh, leading this, this right. effort. So why is this important to this to this directive?
2: So a lot of people don't realize the soft power capability of NASA. This mm. is really, um, you know, earlier you asked, what do you do as the NASA administrator? Well. Um, really about a month ago, I was at the Farnborough Air Show in England meeting with the heads of space agencies from around the world. Um, and the, the idea, you know, I was going to sell this new space policy directive that we're going to the moon and we're going to do a sustainable architecture at the moon. And we want our commercial and international partners to join us in this effort. Uh, I thought I was going to have to do a hard sales pitch. And the reality is, uh, they're ready to go. It was really easy. They're saying to me, uh, Tell us what you need us to do, and we'll go sell our governments because we're ready. They've <laughs> a lot of countries around the world have been waiting to go to the moon, um, and they just needed you know the leader, and that's who we are. We lead. You know you, the other thing that I think is important about NASA, when relationships break down around the world, um, and of course you can probably tell that we've had a strained relationship recently with Russia, mm-hmm. we're able to continue to cooperate on space-related activities, civil space-related activities. Which has enabled us to do more, it's enabled them to do more. And that's really an, a, a line of communication um, that would not be available without NASA. So NASA represents uh, an amazing opportunity for the United States of America to lead. It represents a soft power capability and, um, and really an, an open channel of communication when other channels fail. Hmm. So.
0: So I know it's kind of along these lines of of American leadership, and and it goes back to this idea of cooperation, right? It's something that we're doing right now, and Mark, you're very familiar with it, right? You've worked in the space station program for a long time. You yourself were a leader to, to actually work with russia and make things happen so describe how it's it's called an international space station it's called that for a reason it's because it's all of these nations coming together to make this thing this single idea possible so how does that how does that work this I international think, cooperation i think
1: it's a great lead in or tie to your previous question too because really hmm. it was nasa united states that said hey we want to do this space station hmm. and hey we want to do this with other folks and then they came alongside and did it with us yeah but to do that so to lead You know, to be a good leader, one, you have to have a vision, but two, you also have to listen, right? You have to understand your partner's common goals. And so unifying around common goals is really Mm -hmm. important. And that was a lot of what we did with the Russians in the early stage. You know, you, you set a policy, but then you sit down across the table and talk about what drives them, right? What's likely to enable support within their country for them to get the funding to do the things that, that they need to do. And so a lot of that is you, you, you find out that's what makes these kind of partnerships work. Um, so stations the a, a, a big example of that, not just the Russians, but of course the Europeans, the Japanese, the Canadians. Um, and all of them have their own thing, right? They have their own thing that they're interested in, their own thing that drives them. And so you're trying to find the common that still meets uh, NASA's and the United States goal. So as Jim said, we're taking that experience then out to the moon because orion has a european component right the european service module is a big piece of orion right it's and that's a strategic decision to go partner with them to make that piece of orion so it's the beginning of us leading now into the next phase and um jim said also for the gateway there'll be international and commercial partners as part of that too so it's taken that experience i think we're learning better how to partner (laughs) with commercial folks because they have their own things that drive them right and and how do we find common common goals that that help them help their company uh, but still line up with what we want uh, as a nation so it's a, it's a it's a skill that not a lot of people have it takes time to learn how to do it but it's um it's always exciting and it's a big part i think is what's going to make us sustainable as jim said in the future
2: yeah. one of the challenges <laughs> that you, you kind of touched on is commercial partners are, are one type of partnership. International partners are another type of partnership. Mm-hmm. And we want to enable commercial to join us as we develop our next generation of capabilities. And they want to join us. The The challenge is how, how do you, if, if you're developing this architecture and you want commercial partnerships in it, how do you then include international partners as well? And so... The idea would be, well, we bring in our commercial partners, they bring in their commercial partners, and then we partner at the agency level with all of our commercial partners kind of in the, in the mix. Well, there are some countries that don't have commercial partners. They don't have commercial space capabilities. And in fact, I've met with uh, one country in particular who... know told me that that they're not interested in commercial and that and that you know they're not real thrilled about our commercialization of space and I said well tell me why is that we can do more now than we've ever been able to do before why is that and this this particular person said well we don't have private capital in our country (laughs) Um, which kind of was eye-opening for me we don't we don't have private capital Um, so to the extent we partner with some countries that have a different way of doing government and business right uh, you know, we have to, we have to think carefully about, um, how to, how to include them in an era when we want commercialization and they're, they're not there yet. Um, and in some of these cases, and I've talked to some countries, they're working really hard to develop a commercial capability that doesn't yet exist, which is also, that's good to see. That's, that's American leadership. That's NASA leadership, um, that's going to enable us as humanity to do more than we've ever done before.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. I feel like there's this sense of American inspiration as well because we've been working with with uh, companies now, our our nations, for the, with the International Space Station for almost two decades now, right? So, so it's it's this constant cooperation that kind of gets the wheels turning and 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 makes things work but are you seeing a change in the landscape are you seeing that it's growing that more companies and more industry are wanting to take part in uh, space exploration and and even commercial space mark do you want to take that
1: yeah yeah i think you can see it in just the variation of the companies that are working on payloads and other things on space station companies that have grown up basically really uh providing a capability nobody thought of before like right. an airlock to then use to fly uh small satellites cubesats right something that we didn't think about a lot now station i think is the number one platform for launching these satellites into space so things we hadn't thought of before companies are coming up with that and so the key is uh as we've talked just providing a framework where you can get that innovation right yeah. and getting enough framework that we make sure a hey, station's going to be okay but then giving enough room so they can innovate and find niches that we would never have thought of before so hmm. we're seeing that a lot of space it's a different way of doing business exactly
0: yeah
2: but there's also even beyond nasa when you think about um, what's happening with communication architectures where it used to be in order to do over the horizon communication you had to launch to geostationary orbit and the, the satellites were $500 million and they were, you know, the size of, of this table here. And now we're seeing constellations of thousands of satellites being launched into low earth orbit um, that are the size of a, a dishwasher. Uh, and that's going to enable low latency, high throughput communications. In other words, um, it will meet the same standard as cell tower communications. Mm-hmm. Your Your cell phone will be able to work wherever you are in the world. You could be in in rural Alaska, or you could be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and your cell phone will work uh, from any of those locations, which will connect. You know, there's still two thirds of the world that's not connected. Um, well, at that point, anybody who has a cell phone is now connected to the rest of the world. So, those capabilities are being launched, and there's half a dozen different companies that are launching those types of constellations into space. Uh, and each one of those companies will be able to benefit NASA yeah. um, when you think about the the communication architecture that we need in space, and ultimately the type of communication architecture that we're going to need around the moon, and maybe even at Mars. So there's a lot of um, a lot of commercial capability being developed right now that's going to be tremendously valuable um, for for NASA.
0: Right. Capability, opportunity, everything, really. Uh, I know something else new is we're in this time now where where the administration is suggesting um, a Space Force, right? Yeah. I actually had my mom text me and say, well, how does this affect you? Does that mean NASA's going away? I feel like there's, there's sort of a disconnect going yeah. on here. So how, how, would, how do you describe, to those who are confused, uh, Space Force and NASA?
2: Great question. NASA does exploration and discovery and science. We do not do national security and defense. Hmm. Uh, of course, we, we do have an ability to do international relations and soft power, leadership, those kind of things. But right. but we don't get involved in the hard power activities of the country intentionally. You go back to 1958, the creation of NASA. Eisenhower was absolutely adamant that NASA not be part of the national security apparatus. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a good thing for our agency. Um, at the same time, uh, the Space Force, when you think about what it is, um, it's it's really, uh, you look at Air Force Space Command, they're responsible for organizing and training a cadre of professionals that can do space security activities. Hmm. And then the Space and Missile Systems Center, which is another Air Force command, um, is responsible for acquiring assets for space defense, space security. So you take those those components, the Air Force Space Command and the Space and Missile System Center, and you take them out of the Air Force and you, you put them under a new secretary, a secretary of the Space Force, hmm. and you have a repr- have them represented on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and that in essence because becomes your organize, train, and equip function, which is all that a military service is. A military service is responsible for organizing, training, and equipping a cadre of professionals to fight in a certain domain. So all of that could be, in fact, the you know the plan is that that's the, you know it, w- it would it would come really out of the air force. Now the benefit of creating a separate force is then it has a line item that is equal to that of the air force and the navy and the army and the marine corps, um, and it doesn't have to compete against the air domain for resources. Don't get me wrong, it will have to still compete because at the end of the day, the, the, the budget is only so big, but it will, have its, it will have the ability to compete on the same level as, as the, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army. So all of that, I think, um, is, is really what the Space Force is all about. Um, if you listen to what the Vice President announced a number of weeks ago, he also said that they wanna create a new combatant command. Mm-hmm. So the military service organizes, trains, and equips the cadre. Of, of professionals. But ultimately, warfighting is done by what's called a, a combatant command. In this case, it would be a functional combatant command. People are really familiar with what a, a geographic combatant command is. Geographic meaning, like, where in the world is it? So CENTCOM is, is in the Middle East. People are familiar with CENTCOM or European Command, African Command. Um, there's uh, the Pacific Command. All of these different uh, geographic combatant commands. In this case, it would be a functional combatant command responsible for fighting and winning wars in space. The idea being, you know, NASA and our commercial partners and other commercial entities, we, you know, we have hundreds of billions of dollars in space, hundreds of billions. Plus, we have our astronauts in space, and so they generally, we need security. Yeah. And what we have to do is we have to make sure that any potential adversary that we may have. Any potential adversary looks at um, the space domain and they see that they aren't going to get any kind of advantage by destroying it. They cannot win. There is no advantage. And in fact, if they tried, it wouldn't work. That's Mm -hmm. the goal. And, And if we can deter them from taking a war into space, then the rest of us, all of humanity, can use space for our peaceful purposes, which is what ultimately we've been doing now since NASA's creation in 1958. So... Uh, As a member of Congress, when I was in Congress, I voted for the Space Force three times, and it passed the full House of Representatives. Hmm. And it passed in a strong bipartisan way, it got 344 votes. Um, And of course, it went to the Senate, and it didn't pass the Senate. Um, But there was strong bipartisan support in the House, the President has seen the same intelligence that we've seen in the Congress, and he took it up a notch and said, "Uh, we got to get this done. And I, I think he's right. Awesome. Yep. And in
0: the meantime, NASA is is leading this cooperative exploration. Goal, That's right? exactly right. And so it's part of our it's part of our vision is, is reach new heights and reveal the unknown. So a, as we're wrapping up and to be conscious of your time, this this meaning this uh, reveal the unknown, uh, reach new heights. What does this mean to you? And we'll close with that.
2: So it, it really, you know, we are learning new things every day, just since I've been the NASA administrator a little over three months, we, we have discovered in these a little over three months that mars has a methane cycle that is perfectly in tune or keeps perfectly with the seasons of mars which, which doesn't guarantee that there's life but it increases the probability that there's life um complex um uh uh, uh complex uh, what are the compounds um organic uh organic compounds have been found oh, yeah. on mars which Again, doesn't guarantee life, but it increases the probability of life on mm-hmm. Mars. We, we've also discovered now, just maybe a couple of weeks ago, there's liquid water one and a half kilometers under the surface of Mars. Now, that doesn't, again, guarantee life, but liquid water is a good—you you need liquid water for life. And the fact that it's one and a half kilometers underground means that it's going to be protected from the radiation environment of, of deep space. Mm-hmm. Which all of this you know, adds up to say, is there life on Mars? We don't know. But we need to find out. And um, to the extent that somebody finds life on a world that's not our own, it needs to be the United States of America. So that's what we're doing. We're making discoveries. You know, We're going to launch uh, in the next three years the James Webb Space Telescope. And we're going to see back to the very dawn of time. <laughs> Cosmic dawn, the first light in the universe. We have... Ideas and models as to what the universe looked like when it was first created, but we know that those models are all wrong. Hmm. Um, We need to, and and so we're going to see it with with our own instruments. Um, So the James Webb Space Telescope is not just going to look all the way back to the very first light in the universe. It's also going to see back all the way out to the edge of the universe, where we have galaxies that are accelerating. You know. You know, as the universe expands, it's expanding at an ever-increasing rate. The universe is accelerating away from a point in the center, and um, that expansion ultimately is demonstrating that there's a force at work here and that we don't understand. We talk about things like dark energy and dark matter, things that we can't detect, we can't interact with, but what we do know um, is that we, you know, we see its gravitational effects. Um, and, and we see these galaxies accelerating at the edge of our universe to the speed of light. So they just disappear. Well, we're going to be able to look at all those. We're going to be able to see inside of other galaxies. Um, We're going to be able to see within our own galaxy. We're going to be able to see planets around other stars and ultimately make determinations whether or not those planets have a habitable kind of atmosphere. We're going to be able to to determine what type what, if if these planets have atmospheres, what those atmospheres are composed of, and if there could be life there. Um, so, look, NASA is doing really amazing things, and um, every day we're making new discoveries. And the the more capability that we're putting into space, even right now, <laughs> that we're going to have so many new discoveries, we're not going to be able to you know communicate all of them fast <laughs> enough, uh, <laughs> which is a really good problem to have. Yeah. So we're learning more about. Um, more about our universe. Are we alone in the world? And uh, these are these are important questions for us to answer.
0: Wonderful. Mark, any, any final thoughts before we wrap up?
1: I, I think there's some other things about NASA that uh, I know changed my life. You know, I remember the first pictures from Mercury and Gemini about the Earth from space, which changed, which no one had seen before, so it changed our whole idea. And then as Jim, in an earlier speech today, was talking about Apollo 8, and I remember seeing the Earth come up over the limb of the moon, and remembering what that felt like to see ourselves in the solar system from a distance. It changed everybody's idea of kind of how important the earth was. Those were really changed our whole perception. I remember when uh, Bob Cabana and Sergey Krikalov went together through the uh, hatch of the the node, the first time on space station, right? Joining together. So I think those images, Uh, along with the discoveries, those images, I think can change the way we see ourselves in the world can be really, really important. And I think with this new exploration campaign, we're going to see many more of those things. That's wonderful. This
0: is such an exciting time. Jim and Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing these wonderful insights. It's really a pleasure to talk to you today. Awesome. Thank
2: Thank you so much, Gary.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around. I had a great conversation with our administrator and center director here at uh, Johnson Space Center. We talked to Jim Brinstein and Mark Geyer. They're both on Twitter, so you can follow them specifically if you would like. On uh, Twitter, it's at Jim Breinstein for our NASA administrator, and it's at Director Mark G for our uh, center director here at the Johnson Space Center. There are a lot of other NASA podcasts that you can listen to. Houston, we have a podcast is one of them. Uh, another out at headquarters is Gravity hosted by Dr. Jim Green. We have NASA in Silicon Valley out of the Ames Research Center and then Rocket Ranch out at uh, Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Uh, you can follow us on social media. NASA as a whole agency to see what we're doing just across all of these different areas. Uh, NASA is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under at NASA. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for this show. Houston, we have a podcast. Just make sure uh, to mention Houston, we have a podcast in the request so we can find it. This episode was recorded on August 23rd, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, John Stoll, Pat Ryan, James Hartsfield, Dylan Mathis, and Devin Bolt. Thanks to Matt Ryden and John Yebrick at NASA's headquarters for helping this to come together. Uh, Thanks to Stephanie Castillo here at the Johnson Space Center also. And also, thanks again to NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine and Johnson Space Center Director Mark Geyer for taking the time to come on the show. We'll be back next week.